0: Hello, and welcome to Cecil Radio, Episode 1, a chance to talk through all kinds of topics about Cecil. I'm Susan Weber, and I'm joined today by Ian Martell. Ian, thank you so much for agreeing to co-host with me. Tell us about yourself.
1: Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here today. It's a real privilege, I, I feel anyway, to be able to join you to take such a good look at Cecil as a whole. Um, so I'm a senior in our financial services practice group here at Barry Dunn. Uh, I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of great clients over the past five and or five and change years, I guess. Um, you know, from community banks to credit unions to you know uh, just the wide variety of financial services backgrounds out there. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to you know know my clients better and their specific challenges, and you know figure out ways that we can best help them meet their needs.
0: Well, that's awesome, I am so happy that you're here and that we get a chance to spend the next few minutes talking about Cecil, but I'm not gonna let you off the hook that easily, right? Give me a fun fact, give us a fun fact about Ian.
1: All right, so I guess my most pertinent fun fact at the moment is that I'm actually going to be getting married this September. Um, so, you know, the wedding planning has been going well, but this is, a, uh, this is a good opportunity for me to take a little break from the planning uh, for a little bit and shift the focus on to Cecil since it's such a, you know, hot upcoming topic as we well know.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. Well, we'll, we'll Thanks. already put in our order for great weather.
1: For yeah. September. <laughs> I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Ian, as you know, I've, I've, I'm always grateful for a diverse and never dull 26-year public banking career myself, um, and most recently you know, leading credit risk initiatives, activities, and governance, including adopting CECL in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic, which no one really thought was a great time to adopt a new accounting standard, but we learned an awful lot in that process. And so now I just hope to help others lose a lot less sleep in the process of their CECL adoptions. So Ian, having just wrapped up audit and tax season, you've had the chance to speak with a lot of clients. So what's on their minds? What should we talk about today to kick off our podcast series?
1: No, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I've definitely seen kind of across the board. Um, there's folks I've spoken to who have, you know, since the announcement uh, of Cecil first came about, they were, you know, hot and ready. They were they were going right after it. Um, and others, uh, you know, haven't quite had the time um, or have had other priorities that they've needed to be focused on over the past few years. But one thing that definitely came up a lot towards the end of this uh, you know, kind of audit season was you know, Cecil questions and you know, if we would take a look or how we can you know, support their adoption as they move through this year and towards implementation. So I guess you know, given the variety of experiences out there with our clients, um, it might be good if we could start with kind of the basics and some of the key questions we've heard with adoption approaching.
0: Okay. That sounds great. And maybe before I even get to those questions, I could start by making a lot of folks at the firm really happy by being very clear and saying that the thoughts and opinions that we're sharing today are completely our own. <laughs> so with that, um, fire away. What's the first question?
1: All right. Um, so I'm going to go really basic. Uh, I guess going broad strokes, What should folks know at this point about Cecil adoption?
0: Well, um, that's a really good question. I guess I would say um, three things. The first is you have to adopt in 2023 right? So know your date. For most, it's as early as January 1st, 2023. And then I think the second thing is understanding is really the key to all of this, right? To getting through it efficiently, to knowing when you've done enough. That's a big question I I encounter with people. You know, what's enough? You know, have I looked at it enough? Is testing enough? Um, So I think, you know, it all starts with that really basic understanding of, what it is that the CECL, CECL standards asking you to do and not do and what you can um, answer within your own, within your own data, you know, to make a decision to document it and move on. Right. So that you can adopt it with confidence. And then I think the third thing is try to keep it simple. Right. When putting together your methodology, your data and your research can really be used to help confirm or disprove a whole variety of assumptions and choices that you have under the standard. But use that to then build around it. Right. It's really easy, I think, to get caught up in or overwhelmed by all the details, options and choices. But it can be really helpful to take a step back and just remind yourself that you aren't trying to build Rome in a day
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a perfect expression for it and and sums it up. I mean, uh, from my standpoint, you know, from the audit side of the house, I you know, you do want to make sure that there's a level of detail that, um, you know, you can support and that your auditors are going to want to be able to make sure they can dig in. Um, But simple, I think, if it's achievable for you, uh, I don't think you could go wrong there. The, you know the more easy it is to follow your documentation and the decisions you've made, I think um, that'll just bode even better for your first year experience, I mean, in my mind anyway,
0: absolutely. And I'm full of all those old expressions, right? Like don't try to eat the elephant in one sitting is another <laughs> one that I use a lot in this space. You know, my teenagers are probably rolling their eyes, thinking, Oh, mom, that's not funny. But I say them because I think they're useful. Right, and reminding people what is and is not the primary goal when working through something really complex like Cecil. And also because I hope it makes people laugh, right? Anytime you can get people to laugh while implementing Cecil or smile, it's a good day in my book, right? It just helps relieve some of that pressure.
1: No, absolutely. I uh, I couldn't agree more. Any any way you can find to bring a little levity, you know, <laughs> to some of these topics, uh, I think it's all the better. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you brought up those three points. I think those are all really great. Um, and of course, there's a lot more we could unpack from those three. But if we go, you know, back to the first point, you know, you mentioned adoption. Um, you know, one one twenty-three for most folks. I think. Um, can you tell us a little more about that? I mean. Uh, the whole adoption process for Cecil has felt very stop-start for a while, and I know things have moved. So let's let's touch on that again briefly.
0: It has. I think that's a perfect way of describing it, stop-and-start, right? There's a lot of exhaustion that comes from we're on again, off again, and then, you know, throw in the pandemic, which, you know, we're all still trying to gain our energy back, you know, from that time period. But with FASB's affirmative vote earlier this year, all remaining institutions will definitely be required to adopt Cecil on schedule.
1: So you're saying this is real this time, no more delays, no exceptions, you got to do it?
0: That's it. Exactly right. This is really happening. Um, This is not a test. It's for real. And it means all remaining financial services organizations are going to have to make those fundamental changes and the reserve calculation practices by their adoption date, which I always think of as being January 1st, 2023, but that isn't always the case, is it, Ian?
1: no yeah uh you know you're right we do we have we have some folks out there that we work with who you know operate on fiscal year ends um, whether it be you know March 31st or even June 30th um so just worth reminding those folks out there who that may apply to um, that you're going to be aiming for that first day of your new fiscal period that falls within 2023 so if it's you're a 331 uh, fiscal year end you'll be looking at April 1st uh of 2023 as your start date there
0: so that's just as a reminder that's your effective start date where your day one adjustment will take place right Ian
1: yes exactly awesome so, you know, I, I brought up earlier that I, I've run into a handful of folks I've spoken to who have been on this right from the start. You know, they they saw the the initial announcements coming out and, and they figured, well, we better get on this. Um, so what about them, you know, for the ones who've been preparing for a while? Is there anything new they should be thinking about or any changes um, that have come up over these years of delay?
0: Yes and I'm glad you raised that uh Ian there's lots of things that I think um those folks who may be a little further along you know maybe in parallel runs should be really honing in on in these last you know handful of months here but before I get to that there is one change I just want to make sure that everybody is aware of and that is um Drum roll, please! With Cecil adoption, TDRs are eliminated. Right? TDRs, troubled debt restructures. Whoever would have thought we'd live to see the day that has absorbed so much time and effort for bankers since uh, really 2011, uh, and maybe even a little bit before. But um, you know, and the fans go wild. No more TDRs. Right? That's <laughs> that's about as sportsy as I get, Ian. <laughs> So we'll leave it at that. But maybe you can speak a little bit more to what that update really means for people.
1: No, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the changes. You know, obviously, the adoption of Cecil is going to bring about some sweeping changes in how you are calculating a reserve and your modeling process and, you know, the inputs. Um But this, you know, change to the TDR accounting process was one for me where, you know, from the start of my time working with financial institutions, you know, TDR rules were TDR rules. It was, you know, once a TDR, always a TDR. Um, So that for me stood out so much. Um... As you know, a meaningful change um, to the overall process, and you know maybe uh, an opportunity to relieve a little bit of administrative burden, um, and hopefully, you know, with good documentation, um, slow down or take some time away anyway from the amount of time your auditors need to spend around those loans.
0: I think it's really great news i mean there is a new modification disclosure requirement that folks will need to implement with that but i think you're right overall the administrative burden should be reduced for bankers and that should be the net result of the change you know those modification disclosures really kind of came out of the pandemic when banks were sort of self-selecting into and uh, sharing information with uh with folks about the modifications that were happening as a result of pandemic aid and relief. So I think a lot of those processes and and coding decisions are probably already in place. They can leverage that, you know, for the new mods. So I think in general, the administrative burden should be reduced. Um, And our colleague, David Stone, wrote a great article uh, Mm -hmm. really reviewing this information. And uh, maybe, Ian, tell the folks how they can uh, access some of that.
1: Yeah no, so we've got uh, a great uh, kind of host of resources available um, at BarryDunn.com/Cecil, just C-E-C-L, um, and we've also got our Ask the Advisor. Function, uh, which you'll find a link to, in the description for this podcast. So that's an opportunity for anyone listening who either, you know, isn't seeing maybe what they need in our resources, or have specific questions um, that you're hoping for a little bit of insight on, to you know, get in direct contact with a member of Barry Dunn's financial services team, and uh, you know, hopefully get the solutions you're looking for. So. If we take a look again, you know, so there's, there's folks out there who have been, you know, developing their models and running it in parallel with their incurred loss calculations um, for quite a while now. Um, and maybe they feel like, wow, we're, you know, almost done. Maybe we're, we're almost ready. Um, what about them? You know, as this year moves on um, and implementation does tick closer, uh, is there things maybe they should be thinking about to, you know, you know, Double check or be really sure that they're ready?
0: Yeah, I think there are really three. Very, very important pieces. And I think they're in a great position, an enviable position, maybe even, to really uh, knock it out of the ballpark on these. And that is sensitivity and stress testing, right? Um, Testing your model, uh, testing your inputs, testing your outcomes based on just uh, minor changes up and down that you might be making, and also major changes, right? Using some historical information to really test that model and what it would produce if it were in play in the last recession or so is going to help you minimize surprises. Um, The other piece is the control environment. You know, in the first wave of adopters, um, I would tell you that many waited until the very end. Many of the big, big, big banks waited until the very end to get through their control process, and um, that can put a lot of strain on the organization across multiple areas. So uh, thinking really strategically about your internal controls and your your controls over financial reporting, you know, any sort of tweaks and adjustments you need to make to existing controls maybe um, it's going to surprise you, you know, that there are so many different people involved in some of this going forward and so some of the control environment might be new to them and to the institution. So I think really thinking that through. Um, and we've got uh, Kaylin who's going to be joining us in a future podcast and we can really dive into all those wonderful fiducia and other, other aspects. And then I think the third really critical one is model documentation. Mm. Um, I, I think model documentation is a lot like exercise. Everybody knows they should be doing it and should probably be doing it every day. Um, but we tend to sort of do it in fits and spurts. But I can't say enough about how important that is not only to your institution to have a legacy document that others can easily follow and understand. It's going to help you uh, through that process. But um, in this first uh adoption period, it's also going to be critical for your auditors, your regulators, anybody who really needs to understand what your model is doing.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think those are all um, you know, really good suggestions and, and they really make sense. Um, you know, if you are in a situation where you feel like maybe your model's ready, um, then maybe it is time to you know get to testing it and make sure it is you know where you want it to be. Um, but the internal control side of things, I think, as well, is one. You know, you're spending so much time, and you should be spending so much time, you know, preparing your model and getting your assumptions and your documentation together. Um, but if you're in a situation where you know you are at uh, the the asset levels where uh, Fidecia Audit does come into play um, or just across the board, you know, strong internal controls are a good thing at all levels. Um, It it probably is worth your time to take a look and make sure that, you know, your controls do speak to the changes in process you've got going on um, and that, you know, the people who are involved are, you know, brought up to speed and, you know, are aware of their new responsibilities. So I've got one. Yeah, I got one for you. That uh, it's, I think, a bit of a you know a hot question. Uh, oh boy! I've gotten a couple of times, <laughs> um, and I and I don't know if, if this is a. There's there's no real right answer to this one, so I think okay. I'm gonna put you on the spot a bit though. Uh,
0: wow, this is a big setup for a question. I, I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. What is it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, if I'm if I'm a a bank or a financial institution. Uh, am I expecting my reserve to go up or down under Cecil versus uh, the incurred loss method? Um, and you know, should I be expecting you know a big impact to my P&L?
0: Wow, you don't pull any punches. <laughs> Who invited you to this yeah. podcast? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it is a real hot topic right now, and especially in some circles, and there are very mixed feelings about what it means, right, to potentially have a day one credit to the reserve as a result of Cecil. So I think before I answer anymore, I definitely think it's a great time for me to just remind people that what I'm about to say is entirely my own opinion. I'm not a CPA, um, you know, this kind of thing. But... So will reserves go up or down? Um, The simple answer is yes. (laughs) They they will do one of of those two things. Perfect. (laughs) Um, You know, just to level set, right? No one ever said that Cecil was put in place specifically to create higher reserves. However, it does seem like a very logical result of implementing Cecil, right? If for no other reason than we're moving from an incurred loss model generally thought of as having maybe a shorter time horizon to a lifetime expected loss model, right? Doesn't that even just sound like reserves should go up?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, Absolutely, and and you know, from me again, and this is just very much from the auditor side of of the the table. Um, I could see really easily where, you know, an auditor or a regulator would have trouble theoretically, you know, understanding if you come to them with your Cecil reserve, you know, mm-hmm. lower than your prior year's incurred reserve. And then, you know, without that suggesting maybe that you've, you know, changed your incurred loss practices or maybe you should have, I should say. Um so I, I think it creates a you know a unique dynamic to that relationship for sure, and those conversations um, you know should be interesting. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, yeah, I I think it can be really tough, right? You know, part of implementing CECL is also asking banks to to evolve their data, right? Their practices, their analysis, their processes, their methods. And just by doing that, they may be creating a more mathematical or a more precise measurement, right? So it's not just even just adopting CECL, but all that it goes into assessing and adopting a new standard, so if this is the case, it almost feels a little like a double whammy, if I'm being really honest, you know, from a banker's perspective, to then fault banks for releasing reserve when they adopt Cecil, right? Which the change in method ultimately led them to do. In my experience, when something lacks precision, good judgment typically errs on the side of caution, right? We're risk managers. <laughs> so yeah. here's another one of those sayings I'll throw in, and I'm taking a lot of liberties here, right? It's amazing how two intelligent, well-informed people can review the same set of information and end up with two different yet very supportable conclusions so that kind of runs through my mind and all this too ian
1: no absolutely um and then you know you touched on it there that 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 kind of key phrase at the end um i think supportable is going to be the the thing you'll probably hear the most uh you know from your auditors and you know maybe you should be reminding the folks internally that you're working with Um, you know i think whether your reserve goes up or down in the end, um, I think it's, you know, very, very important that you're understanding, you know, as an institution, why uh, the change is happening. The, the big why, I think, is is the key, in my opinion, anyway.
0: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, you know, even though I'm not a CPA, I'm not in ca- an accountant, some of my best friends are. And so it seems like a really good idea to me that banks, especially maybe even those whose initial parallel tests indicate some sort of reduction in reserves under Cecil, engage their auditors in discussion now. Don't wait, right? You don't want to wait till the end and say, here is everything and then have a variety of questions that you may not have quite thought through all the answers to. And so. You know, just a little tip, I would start that conversation as soon as you can.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think it's, you know, your auditors are, whether or not they, you know, they can't obviously, uh, you know, perform your modeling for you or anything like that. But they're, they're going to be a big stakeholder in the process of, at least, you know, the actual audit of your model um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, partnership as far as getting their feedback on what you've put together and the documentation you have, uh, I think is a really good idea. And it would then, you know, help you as an institution to better understand the results your model, uh, you know, or models, uh, you know, are producing. Um, And maybe that leads to uncovering some assumptions that, you know, didn't quite get the level of scrutiny they should have, Um, or areas that maybe need a little bit of, uh, you know, tweaking as you approach adoption uh, formally. Um, But again, I think, you know, as long as you've got an understanding and you're able to uh, document and explain what's going on, what's going into your model, what's driving the change, um, you know, reasonable but supportable. You're going to hear that a lot, I think, throughout uh, this series and, you know, as you get into adoption and talking with your auditors. But, if you can lay out the case for where your reserve on day one is going, um, and you've got you know an understanding and the data behind that, I think you're in a fine spot.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, for me, it, you know, that, that idea that you've got a group of, of individuals that you can brainstorm with, run things by, who maybe not as immersed in all the weeds that you've been in, kind of helps build that broader perspective about what are you, what is it that you're actually saying with all of this? Right. And I'm kind of jealous because that wasn't really <laughs> an option <laughs> in the first wave of adopters, right? We were, we were all kind of working through it and, and, you know, it, it, it was all so new that you know, if you could find people, uh, I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about talking about Cecil is there's so few people who really are. (laughs) And
1: (laughs) and so when
0: you find them, they're like gold. It's like, talk to me about this, you know? And, (laughs) And so if you're the one person in your organization, for example, who's really trying to lead this charge, like, where do you go even to just have these discussions and get that other opinion? So I think, you know, finding those other professionals and stakeholders that can really help you think broadly about some things or really challenge some of your assumptions is yeah. is just puts you in a stronger position um, and, and probably more confident, you know, when you roll this thing out.
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, just as a little anecdote from my own experience as an auditor, I think I would much, much rather spend time to be involved with your institution's calculation, at least from, you know, show me your documentation, let me know your thoughts, um, you know, give us an opportunity like I said, we can't do the model for you. We can't tell you what to do with it. Um, But I would much rather have had an opportunity to at least see what you've had the opportunity to put together um, than to come in uh, without having seen it and just get started um, auditing it. Um, So I think for both sides, you know, add some efficiency when it uh, comes time to actually, you know, do the audit itself. Um, But like you said, opportunities to get a little additional perspective and maybe have some challenges to consensus that maybe you pulled together with, you know, could be a, a close working group of people, you know, yep. spending a lot of time on this thing. And, <laughs> uh, you know, consensus in that sense, maybe isn't always the best thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always welcomed that. And I, I know I, often people who meet me say, you well, you're not really every, you know, th- that's not really always representative, <laughs> but I just loved that because I felt like if I could absorb that as um, just another way of thinking or viewing it and feedback, it certainly helps me be ready for all of the conversations that are coming. And, um, you know, and I think also makes it uh, helpful to sort of strategically think about what are those important questions that are on auditors' and regulators' minds so that I make sure I preemptively answer them maybe in my documentation, right? So, um, another little uh, fun fact about uh, why that can be an important exercise.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, I think it helps both parties and, you know, you 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 should have a relationship with your auditors is how I like to view it, um, you know. You, Hopefully part- a good one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you are a team. I think ideally yeah. any auditor-client relationship isn't just one where, you know, your auditors just, you know, they show up for a month, you know, in the, in the winter and they bug all your staff and ask you for all kinds of support. Um. I mean, obviously, you know, that does have to happen, but year round, make it a make it a, a good co-working relationship. And um I think both parties benefit from that a lot.
0: And a a little secret, uh, I think as a as a former banker, we're actually relieved that um that you don't have to do the model for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, it but makes I just sense. Yeah. I just um anyway i think we're just about out of time ian um and i really want to thank you so much for joining me today but before i let you go i've got to do some rapid fire q a all
1: right let's do you ready? it. ready yeah am gonna lay
0: it on you favorite sport
1: uh i'm a soccer fan i played soccer my entire life um and yeah, you know, at a time when not many people were really following soccer amongst my friends, I was always, you know, up really early on the weekends to watch soccer at seven o'clock in the morning over in Europe. And as college went on, particularly, I was able to convert basically all of my roommates into soccer. Fans.
0: <laughs> well, that's a great that I was going to say that's a great goal. But then I was like, oh, there's yeah. a pun in there, right? I didn't mean it.
1: Yeah. All right,
0: I got to ask you one more uh, favorite weekend activity. I am looking for suggestions. That's my okay. secret. i asking you this Yeah, question. so
1: I've got a couple. I've got a couple. I, I picked up golf in the last few years. So, you know, as the weather improves, I love the golf. Um, I love, you know, getting out on the water anyway. I kind of love to fish, kayak, um, anything like that. And then in the winter, I'm a big skier. Um, oh, nice! So a little variety there. I love the outdoors. Any, anything outside.
0: Well, you've got all the seasons covered, I yeah. think. Those are great Those are great ideas. Awesome. Well, I think before we go, I just want to mention the Ask the Advisor feature. Just once again, um, it's all on our webpage, but the link will be here in the comments. And then also, uh, you can access uh, any of our resources at barrydunn.com Cecil. And so tune in next time when I'll be joined by Leah Claire for an important conversation about documenting your model.